Well, as people are logging in, the audio for last week is available and the handouts are on the Normal Church website. The slideshow will be posted as well until we do figure out kind of our new technology platforms. And there's a big review going on for all of that. Again, for this week, the uh, there was a handout sent out on Wednesday with the Church Bulletin. If you want to look at that, it does have more detail in the references and such, but I'll basically be talking to the slideshow this morning. So let me go ahead and bring that up. Let's see. Where's my share screen option, Jed? Down at oh, the bottom bar, big green. You got the PowerPoint? You got the PowerPoint. All right, guys. Well, welcome, everyone. Good morning. Good Easter morning. I uh, hope everyone is excited to worship our Savior today in a, in a special way. I hope your families have actually been thinking about this and talking about this through the week. It is a great opportunity. Uh, last week, uh, for those who were here, I remember we kind of went through a chronology of Jesus's life. We kind of looked at the subject matter, how the Gospels share each other's content and so forth, and kind of the nuts and bolts of how they were put together or at least one way they could have been put together. We're not actually sure. Today we're actually going to look at a little more in depth. Instead of looking at some kind of chronology that we piece together, we're just going to take the authors at their word. And uh, we're going to do the Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the three synoptic gospels, and kind of look at their who the author was, who the, maybe the major potential audience was, what are the types of themes they might have concentrated on. Uh, I did go back, it was less than two years ago, Kevin Park actually did a survey of the Gospels, and so I kind of listened to those this week, make sure I don't have too much overlap, and I don't think there's a lot there, we're kind of approaching it a little bit differently, but some of the things I don't mention, he goes into pretty good detail on, I would, I would commend that to you. Well, let's go ahead and open in prayer. Our Father, we thank you for Sunday morning, particularly Resurrection Sunday. We thank you for the truth that is in this holiday in this celebration, that though Jesus died two days ago, he rose to life this morning, and he appeared to the disciples, confirmed it, he ascended into heaven, and he is preparing a place for us. And now he has sent the Holy Spirit to us and commands us to go and, and share that gospel and disciple the nations. We pray that we would be filled with the power of the Spirit, we would be humbled by all that he has done and all he invites us to be part of, and that we would be obedient and to go out. We pray, especially in this time of coronavirus and quarantine, that we would be seeking uh, particular ways how we as Christians might sh uh, show the love of Christ in a dying world. We pray that those around us would feel the need to repent and run to their creator and feel their way back to him and know that he is not far from each of us. Pray that we would be... Uh, prayer warriors truly on our knees for others, that we would be brokenhearted for those who are out of jobs and who are suffering at this time, and that we would seek to be the hands and the feet uh, of Christ in this time. Help us through wisdom to do that. Help us to be uh, great givers, lovers of giving away uh, our time and our money uh, for those of us who have the resources. Help us now to learn to, to think about the life, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Christ this morning in a special way. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, here's just a, a big picture overview of the four Gospels. Um, we see you have, you have different authors, and I'm going to go in a little bit different order than our Bibles have them this morning. Um, we've got, uh, you know, from all walks of life, we've got maybe some different primary 
audiences in mind and some different focuses uh, that the, the writers have. All these were written in Greek, although there is some Aramaic phrases. We obviously lose that in our English translations. And as we talked about last week, your Matthew, Mark, and Luke are called the Synoptic Gospels, which means they synthesize their material. You really need to read all three to get a full picture of the life of Christ. As John is more of a theological treatise, he doesn't share hardly any material with the others. It's very unique. And Paul has been taking us through that and will continue this fall, uh, Lord willing. And so, and as Kevin said a couple years ago, we don't want to look at these gospels as photographs, as precise modern day biographies, but they're portraits. The, the authors by the Holy Spirit are trying to paint a picture of Christ and uh, they have a different reason, things they're focusing on. And we want to, we kind of want to take them at their word. We want to take the Holy Spirit. There's a reason they were written that way. And we want to dive into that a little more today. Now, none of these authors are actually um, listed. They're not named in the gospels themselves. And so a lot of the reason we believe these are the authors is from tradition. By the second century, it was pretty much settled who these authors were. Um, and there was really no dispute, although we do have some internal evidence. Uh, in Mark, who we think got his material from Peter, uh, all the, the stories with Peter are more vivid. And they actually omit some of the praise for Peter that you find in Matthew and Luke. Um, whoever wrote Luke is definitely a, a very learned person. It's a non-Jew writing to non-Jews, a very orderly account. Um, Luke, if it was Luke, he's a physician, and he focuses on healing. He has the most healings of all the Gospels. He focuses on natural laws. And it's clear he had the ability to become just a really a good historian, making an early account, someone who's smart, basically, and can speak to the Greek-wise audience. Uh, in Matthew, the disciple is called Matthew. He's not called Levi like the others do. Uh, you can imagine an outcast like that would become very zealous when welcomed back to the faith. And John is probably no dispute really at all. It's the disciple whom Jesus loved. He wouldn't name himself. And he's the sole witness to certain events. But whatever, we don't necessarily need to know these things. I don't know how anybody would dispute them at this point in time. Ultimately, we obviously believe the author is the Holy Spirit. But somehow, amazingly, uses people's personalities, their styles, their experiences to, to write truth. And, and ultimately, we obviously by faith, um, believe that God has preserved what we need to be preserved to this day. Uh, looking at these different audiences, I agree with Kevin that we don't want to be too locked into these categories. Certainly there would have been an assumption that these documents would have been passed far and wide. And so the, these weren't constrained, but there was some pretty good evidence that maybe these were the, the focuses um, of the Gospels. Mark has to explain Jewish customs as if it is a, more of a Greek audience. Again, Luke is written in a way to present Jesus as a brilliant thinker and teacher. Most of the parables in the synoptics come from Luke. And then Matthew definitely relies on a lot of your Old Testament knowledge. We're going to go into more of that next week and into the Sermon on the Mount in the coming weeks. And he calls the kingdom of God the kingdom of heaven, very possibly not to offend a Jewish audience. Um, and then going on to those last couple uh, rows, in Mark, Jesus is presented as a suffering servant, and it focuses on his humanity. Those focuses there are all come from Calvin. Luke focuses on Jesus as a savior of all, so it focuses on his priesthood. 
Matthew presents him as the Messiah and the King, focusing on his royalty. And then John as the Christ, the Son of God, focusing on his deity. And as far as dating, again, there's a lot of dispute among the dates. It's, it's not a science. Uh, it's, it's challenging. But most people will agree that Mark was written first uh, in the 50s, perhaps. And then Luke and Matthew probably came pretty close to each other. Most evangelicals placed them before 70 AD because there's no mention of the fall of Jerusalem when that would have been expected. Uh, and then most believe that John was written quite a bit later. Now, if something proved that these were different types of dates, it's, it's not a huge deal. The very fact they were written this early is, is quite early uh, in the ancient world. These, these are very reliable uh, accounts by all ancient standards. And the fact that I didn't mention two of the four are direct eyewitnesses, and the other two were only one person removed. Uh, Luke would have interviewed many people. Very possibly Mary would have been one of those, the details we get in her personal accounts. But again, to be only one person removed uh, a few decades after the events is very credible by any historical standard. And just as one example of how these authors um, kind of emphasize something, all three of the Gospels of Synoptics talk about the plucking of grain on the Sabbath. And, and Jesus says that he is Lord of the Sabbath. And yet, just as an example, Mark and Matthew record different reasons that Jesus gives for why it's okay, why he's not breaking the law. So presumably both of these things were said at that moment, but each of the authors focuses on a different thing. In Mark 2, Jesus says that Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So again, very much in line with Mark focusing on humanity, and that's the Sabbath is being a help, that man needs to help, and Sabbath is made to be a help for man. But Matthew, writing to a Jewish audience, and perhaps wanting to defend the fact that Jesus did keep the law, he didn't break the law, he says, have you not read what David did when he was hungry? Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? I desire mercy and not sacrifice. So maybe just, and, and we'll see this in the Sermon on the Mount a bit as well, trying to go into the law to really understand the law in a better way than they did. So again, both of these are accurate. Both of these Jesus said, both of them are good reasons uh, to not condemn the disciples for picking gain on the Sabbath. And yet again, it, it works into their whole motif, into their whole um, presentation of Jesus. All right, moving on. For those who were here last week, remember uh, the chart on the left is just a kind of a snapshot of what kind of content um, the words and the verses and the, the story content that was shared. Again, Mark, probably being first, uh, was written. He kind of gives a core of the, the events of Christ's life. Now, Mark actually deals with less content. It's a smaller gospel, if you can see, just by the size of that circle. Um, but when he does pick up a story, he writes it in much more detail. Luke and Matthew pretty much take up all of Mark's content and it, uh, implement those in their own stories, but then they add other content. Uh, what's called the double tradition in Matthew and Luke both add that Mark doesn't have that takes up about a quarter of their gospels. And then each of the writers have some unique content. And so what we're going to do today is we're going to walk through um, just taking that first slide uh, for granted, what most people agree kind of who the audience and focuses are. We're going to walk through how they've arranged their gospel and then come back to this and think, um, why did they maybe choose this story and, or why did they exclude this story? And, it's obviously something we can't do real-time too much today, but 
it would be a great exercise for you to, to do with your families. On the right side, you'll see basically just the map of the world. Remember again that Galilee uh, in the north, let's see, uh, is where Jesus, most of his ministry actually took place. Uh, it's where he was born and, and lived. And then we, we have all sorts of stories going on in Galilee. Because of John, we know that actually, as the synoptics kind of present him up here, his whole, most of his ministry, he's actually going back and forth to different feast days in Jerusalem, passing through Samaria, uh, where we get some of our stories like the woman at the well. And then, of course, there's, there's a fair amount happening down uh, in Jerusalem, in Judea, throughout his life. And then ultimately, as he comes down that last week, this week that we're celebrating now, which takes up about a quarter of Luke and Matthew and even more in Mark, there's just so many teachings and stories as he's making his way to Jerusalem. Uh, then when you say beyond the sea or beyond the Jordan, we're talking about here over on the east. All right. So first we'll look at Mark. So Mark's style, as I've kind of mentioned, uh, is very detailed. If you were going to write a life of Christ in Hollywood, this is the gospel that you would use. Uh, Lots of detail, lots of narrative, not as much teaching at all at the other ones. Very fast-paced. He jumps right in. Uh, as we saw last week, he skips all the, the early life of Christ. He skips the genealogy. He just goes right to Jesus' ministry. And then it has a very abrupt ending as well. In fact, there's some disputed verses at the end of the gospel that maybe someone tried to add to kind of smooth over the fact that it's so abrupt. And so you see here three main sections. Uh, that purple there, again, refers to that triple tradition. And then there's a little bit that only Matthew picked up and not Luke. But basically, as we mentioned last week, that for the most part, uh, Jesus is presented as his ministry primarily being up in Galilee. Eventually, he's going to start making his way on the way down to Jerusalem. He starts to um, show a little bit about what, how his life is going to end. And it's going to start to really confuse the, the disciples. And also, we're going to end up in Jerusalem for the last quarter of his book and talk about this last week that we're celebrating. He uses present tense quite a bit. The word immediately appears 40 times. So it's just a very fast-paced, active, moving story. And, and he's going to teach us about Jesus through stories. There's not going to be hardly any commentary by the writer. He wants us to understand Jesus, understand his ministry through the stories themselves and through the characters he interacts with. So that first section, as he's in Galilee, uh, it starts, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So he's going to ask, who is this Jesus? Is he really the Christ? Is he the promised Christ from the Old Testament? He's going to go through his baptism and John the Baptist's testimony about him. And then in chapter 1, it says, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So there it is. That is Mark's concentration in his gospel that Jesus is the Christ. He is the one that has come to fulfill and to establish the kingdom of God. And there's an action expected there. There's a response expected. Repent and believe the gospel. God is restoring his reign on earth through Jesus. Then in chapter 2, we get this story. Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And so not only is this Jesus uh, establishing his authority, um, 
he's to the point of even forgiving sins, very much understanding that he's making himself equal with God. He's taking the authority that only God can take. And just the very nature of God's kingdom and, and what is meant by Jesus coming is just really shaking up the crowd. They did not expect this. They expected a much different kind of savior, a different kind of warrior come to, to free them from Rome. And so it's a real hidden, mysterious nature of his kingdom. And not only the crowd's confused, but eventually the disciples start to be really confused as we go into this next section. Again, this phrase, on the way, starts to come up a lot. So Jesus has established his ministry, a lot of popularity, and now the opposition begins. And he begins to make his way to Jerusalem, which is really to say he's starting to make his way to the cross. This is what it's all leading up to. In chapter 8, we read this. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist. And others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days, rise again. So again, that's really the heart of Mark's message. Who do you say that I am? Can you say that he is the Christ? And he's really calling for discipleship. We need to follow or deny Jesus. He doesn't really leave a, a neutral response as an option. So to be a disciple is to be in relationship with him, to observe him, to listen, to trust, and to ultimately confess him. We have the story of the Mount of Transfiguration there where the physical embodiment of God's glory. In the end of chapter 10, he says, But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. And so we see even further, disciple follows Jesus by giving his life in service to others. And then we have our third section as he finally makes his, his final push down to Jerusalem, down towards the cross. We see how he, he finally becomes the king. He enters Jerusalem. He turns the tables. That would have been, so last Sunday would have been obviously Palm Sunday, the entry Monday, he would have turned the tables. And he starts to really debate with the leaders, expose their hypocrisy. And so they do plan to crucify him. He talks about the temple being destroyed, and that's not really understood until later. He says the disciples are going to be persecuted. And ultimately, on Thursday, came the Last Supper, that remembrance of the death of the Passover lamb. On Friday would have been his arrest, his trial, and his crucifixion. So in chapter 15, we read, At the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink saying, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that, saw that in this way, he breathed his last. He said, truly, this man was the son of God. So even to the end, the disciples are quite confused. It isn't until quite later, and of course, Mark writing this later, that they have any idea, really understanding how these things are filled who Jesus was. And then, of course, we have uh, this morning. The, the women would have run to the tomb, and they would have seen the angels, and, uh, and all the different appearances we have in the other 
uh, Gospels. But again, a quite an abrupt ending there. So just as a, as a recap, some of the major goals that Mark has in his Gospel, which again is the core of all three synoptics. Jesus seeks to correct messianic expectations. He's not the savior that they expected. It's not the kingdom that they expected. Jesus is a son of man with all power and authority. And yet he's going to have to suffer. It doesn't make sense. Jesus calls followers to imitate him in humble service, self-denial, and suffering. So that is the gospel of Mark. I'll go ahead and pause there, Jed, if you want to unmute, if there are any questions up to this point. Yeah, everybody, you can go ahead and unmute yourself right now if you have any questions. All right. Well, we will press on to Luke. All right. Luke, if you just kind of look at the colors there, um, trying to show you, again, the purple, sections two and four, are basically the, the triple tradition there. And so that's where Luke is going to take from Mark and make up almost half of his gospel. And then he's going to add some unique, uh, that first part all about the early life of Christ is going to be unique to Luke. And then that middle bit, that journey to Jerusalem, he's going to add a lot more than Mark has. And most of that is makes up the double tradition, although some of that is unique as well. And that's where you're going to add a lot of more teaching, a lot of the parables and such. So let's just walk through this. Uh, again, his style, he says in his first opening verses that he's trying to write an orderly account. He wants to give this Theophilus, he wants to give his audience certainty that these things took place. And so clearly he was not an eyewitness. He would have gone and, and done some uh, real historical work in interviewing people. And so we have some, a very good idea of what happened. Some, again, take Luke as the most chronological, while some take Mark. Uh, we're not going to get into that again today. Uh, so starting with the intro there, uh, chapter one, his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. So one thing is just the fact that he has his birth announcement starts to show right away that Luke's emphasis is on Jesus's humanity. This God became a man, but didn't just become a man. He became a baby and walked through life just like all of us. He also refers here to the Holy Spirit. And actually Luke refers more to the Holy Spirit than all the other gospels combined. And then we see that Jesus is God's plan for salvation to the whole world. He's the Savior of all. But he's not just the Savior of all out of nowhere. Again, even to a Greek audience, Luke is very insistent that this is the fulfillment of the covenant with Israel. The world is going to be saved by the exact same promise as, as Paul teaches us much more later that comes through Abraham. The Gentiles are going to be recipients of this covenant. He focuses a lot of characters there. Like Abraham, Joseph, and Mary are going to receive the unlikely promise of a son. John comes as a prophetic messenger. Jesus is the messianic king. And there's a great story of Simeon who talks about the coming of the salvation for Israel. So in this section, we see that Jesus is the Savior of all in the sense that he's the Savior of both Jew and Gentile. In the second section, much of it is the same as, as Mark, his baptism, his teachings about the kingdom, resistance from leaders. 
He reveals that he must die. We've got the Mount of Transfiguration there. But one thing he adds is a genealogy. And the genealogy of Jesus goes back to Adam and then back to Abraham and then back to uh, Adam. Sorry, to David, Abraham, and Adam. And so in one sense, the fact that he goes all the way back to Adam, again, shows that Luke wants to make sure that his audience realizes this, uh, this quote, Savior of Israel is actually a Savior of all mankind, everyone who can trace their way back to Adam, which, of course, is everybody. And yet he does it through David and Abraham. Again, the Savior of all must come through Israel. In chapter 4, another emphasis of Luke is seen. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now the word the poor all through the scriptures isn't just those who are in low economic status, but it's really anyone. It's, it's the captives, those who are oppressed. So anyone who's bedridden, those who have skin diseases, those who are paralyzed, tax collectors, the prostitutes, all these stories, real events and parables that, that Luke uh, demonstrates really emphasize the fact that Jesus came to the poor. He didn't just come to the high and mighty, those in authority, those who were religious and educated. So in this sense, Jesus doesn't just come as savior of all from Jew and Gentile, but savior of all in the sense of all types of people from all across the spectrum. We saw last summer when we went through the social justice study that the people that pe people who are pro-social justice in the New Testament will turn to Luke for a lot of their defense because Luke concentrates so much on the poor. And that he says here in that chapter four, quote, he, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That's the Jubilee. So again, Gentiles are going to be able to celebrate the Jewish Jubilee through Jesus. Luke goes on to concentrate a lot on the danger of money, all sorts of parables and teachings about the danger of money. Uh, women are valuable followers, probably emphasized more than any of the gospel. Again, sometimes considered lower in society at the time. And so Luke is definitely uh, the savior for all mankind, uh, showing Jesus as the savior of all mankind. Okay, and into the last, uh, into the journey of Jerusalem. Um, a lot of what I just said about the poor is what's going to continue through all of his teachings here. He's got the parable of the Good Samaritan. These are all unique to Luke, by the way. Where the priest and the Levite are outdone by a Samaritan. Again, all mankind. The story of Mary and Martha, as we talked about last week. The parable of the rich fool, chapter 12. I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, fool. This night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. I just imagine there are some people during this coronavirus with the economic meltdown are living this parable out right now. They have trusted in their riches and trusted in the future, and they just thought they had life all planned out. Uh, and for whatever reason, this pandemic has come upon us and has laid waste to their plans. And what a great time for them to get right with God. We have the parable of the great banquet, chapter 14. Then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, Go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor and crippled and blind and lame. Go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in, that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. Again, the gospel came to his own. It came to the Jews and they rejected him. So now it goes out to the world. 
Such an emphasis for Luke. We have the parables of the lost coin, the lost sheep, the prodigal son. That which has been lost has now been found. We have the story of Zacchaeus is unique to Luke. Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. That would just be incredible, uh, surprising language. Who is in this kingdom? Who can be right with God? And then in the last section, Luke doesn't have a lot of uh, new stuff there. He does have some more appearances. He does have the, the, the road to Emmaus there where Jesus uh, unfolds for the two disciples walking there. All that was written in the Old Testament and shows that all had to do with himself. Um, more about the ascension, setting up the, what you could call Second Luke, which is really the book of Acts as Tim has taken us through, that, through the sermon series. Um, the same author there. And so just one continual flow into the, into the church. So that is Luke. And going on to Matthew. So Matthew is going to take Mark's material, and he's going to divide it quite differently. Most people think Matthew is the least chronological. So he's going to, he's going to show his, uh, his stories and his teachings about Jesus. Um, he's going to wrap them in five kind of little books. Um, he's, for the most part, he's going to take Mark's narratives, divide them up, and then add a major section of teaching. And so five times you have a narrative, chapters of narrative, and then you have one to three chapters of major teaching, and each time it's going to wrap up and it's going to say, when Jesus had finished these sayings, or when he had finished these instructions or these parables, and then it's going to go on to the next flow. So Matthew still, for the most part, keeps chronological, but you'll see a lot of the teaching primarily kind of taken out and, and grouped together a little more thematically. Uh, in his intro, he also, like uh, Luke, has a genealogy, but it's different. It's the son of David, the son of Abraham. He stops there. Again, focusing a little more perhaps to a Jewish audience, a little more about the fulfillment of Jesus from the Old Testament. And so he's going to ground, ground Jesus for the most part in David and Abraham. And Matthew was really loved by the early church, perhaps more than the other Gospels. And he's very much uses a lot of uh, literary styles that we kind of miss in the English. And that's true of lots of the Bible, actually. Lots of the Psalms are written that way. And there's just a, there's an editorial style going on that we kind of miss. Um, Kevin goes into a lot of detail on this. I'll let you go back and listen to that. But just in general, the way that genealogy is written in chapter one is he goes back 42 generations. So that's six times seven. So six sevens. So not quite seven sevens, which would be the completion of completions. And so almost in a sense that Jesus is coming to finally fulfill the line of Abraham, the line of David. And the name David can be translated as the number 14. So 14, 314s is 42. And so he, he is the son of David, the son of David, the son of David, and he's a better David that has come. Lots has been written on those uh, possible interpretations, but whatever is true, it, um, Matthew is definitely intentional here. It was no accident the way he arranges his genealogy. And it's, it's teaching a Jewish audience who would understand these things. Um, just the supremacy of Christ and the fulfillment of the promises that is coming through him. Uh, verse 21 there of uh, chapter 1, he says, You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. 
They shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. So Jesus is presented as the line of Judah. Um, he's going to fulfill uh, prophecies about the weeping in, in Ramah as Herod kills the male children. He's called a Nazarene. He, the voice in the wilderness, all this fulfillment of prophecy. And we're going to get a little more into this next week, like I said. Um, Jesus doesn't appear out of nowhere. So to understand Jesus the best, you really need to understand your Old Testament. You're not going to understand some of these references that the gospel writers are talking about. He's presented as the new Israel who came out of Egypt and passed through the waters of baptism, entered the wilderness for 40 days. He's, he's the new Moses who goes up on a mountain to teach commandments. And it seems like everything important in Matthew happens up on a mountain. He's the new Exodus. He is really the fulfillment of everything. And then we go into his five sections. So that first section is announcing his kingdom. In chapter 4, from that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He's echoing John the Baptist's call to repentance from hypocrisy by Jews who presume to say that we have Abraham as our father. He confronts evil. He restores God's reign. He creates a new family with an unexpected type of kingdom. And the great teaching in that section, of course, is the Sermon on the Mount. How are citizens to live and truly fulfill the law? And we'll be going through that for the next few weeks. Those are my dogs. All right, the second section, Jesus brings kingdom into people's lives. And so in the narrative portion there, you have nine separate stories, but they're really displayed as three triads. So three groups of three stories that talk about the power of God's kingdom in reality. Between each of those triads, Jesus calls his people to follow him. And ultimately, he gives instructions in chapter 10 and to send out his 12 apostles to carry that message. In the third section, we have the responses to Jesus as Messiah. And there are at least three responses we see there. There's a positive response by John the Baptist. There's kind of neutral responses from the disciples and from Jesus' own family. And there's definitely negative responses from the religious leaders. And these type of responses then are wrapped up into the kingdom parables in chapter 13. You can think of the sower and the seeds. Uh, the, the word goes out. The same word goes out. Um, but because of the, the different types of soil, the different types of hearts, that it falls upon, you end up getting different types of fruit, different responses. Again, Matthew is, is taking the narrative, the, the details of Jesus' life, and then wrapping all his teaching um, at the end of those to kind of show which teachings kind of correspond to which narratives. In section four there, there's different expectations about the Messiah. First, Jesus feeds a, a Jewish crowd of 5,000, and then he feeds a non-Jewish crowd of 4,000. He corrects the false assumptions of a victorious conqueror. Uh, instead, he's going to be more of a suffering servant. Again, in chapter 16, similar to Mark, who do you say that I am? And in chapters 18 to 20, a long passage there of Jesus' words, it's the upside-down nature of God's kingdom. A very common phrase, upside-down nature. It's, it's God's kingdom is very different than what people expected. And then comes the clash of the kingdoms. The start of Jesus' final week, and they start to plot to kill him. And, and this is where a lot of the teachings in that final week, debating with the hypocritical Pharisees. We get some unique material like the sheep and the goats. Uh, and then the conclusion there after his five sections is very similar to the rest. Not a lot of new material, but there are some, some instances there. The fact that Judas hangs himself is unique to Matthew, as well as Pilate washing his hands. And, of course, we have the Great Commission. Go ye therefore in all the earth, baptizing and discipling them, teaching them all things. And that is Matthew. 
And the last slide I have is really what I kind of want to just prompt our discussion with. And this would be a fun exercise, like I said. Um, you have kind of the overview of, of perhaps who wrote it, who were they writing for, what they were focusing on. And then here's just an example of the, I tried to piece together some of those events that we went through last week and try to put them in their proper place here. What is part of the triple tradition, meaning all three of the gospels um, included them. And then on the right side, you have triple tradition that also includes John, that's the fourth. You have some things that are unique to each of the authors. You have some that only two of them shared. And so, however we answer this, we might not be sure, but as you look at that, and I'll just pause for a moment here as Jed unmutes the microphone. As you look at this, is there anything that sticks out to you that, oh yeah, based on maybe where this focus is, this makes sense that this parable or this event, this healing was included or, um, or excluded in a, in a certain gospel? And go ahead and take the time just to, to look over that. All right, anyone want to go first? Keith, a little earlier on, um, Ed asked a question in the chat. Was there any discussion of Theophilus in Luke's introduction being a particular person or a general term or a lover of God? Uh, yeah, I, I don't know the answer. The, it is disputed. It, was it a certain person or was he just kind of representing um, – Overall, I, I'm not sure. Yeah, I, I haven't done a lot of particular study on that. It, it, I think it does show that it's a Greek audience. I think that's helpful. But... This is Ed. What, what the chat points to is the truth of eyewitness accounts, how uh, three different people witnessed the same events and yet in such unique ways. And it just affirms the truth of the gospel. Um, I think about the, the example I've seen many times with evidentiary classes in law school where they have something happen unexpected. They, someone will run into the classroom and then run out and then the professor asks the class uh, what did they see and the class comes up with 22 different interpretations of what they actually saw. And that, that's it just to answer the truth and the significance of the gospel. Yeah, it's a great point. Some, some kinds of critics will say the fact that it's not the same there's differences um, should challenge his credibility, but um, quite the opposite as you, as you articulated that they clearly did not get huddled in a room together to, to conspire, to come up with a story that would pass muster. They, they told it like they saw it, like it, like it was heard and understood. Any other comments or questions either on that last slide or not? Uh, yeah, um, I, I have a question. This is Emmanuel. Uh, on, on the slide here, uh, Luke and Matthew at the very end, it says Perean ministry. What do you mean by that? So back, uh, let's see. Uh, so Perea here is beyond the Jordan. One of them oh, okay. the Perea on So So basically in Jesus's life, he kind of spent up here. He went down and back, down and back. He goes to the Outer Ages, and then he actually starts to make his way down. He stops in Bethany. We have a story there with Mary Martha, 
And then he goes out in his final push beyond, uh, and that's the Perean ministry there, and then comes back in. For whatever reason, Luke doesn't really pick up on that. Thanks, Keith. Anyone else? All right, I'll go around the slide here and see if there's anything jumps out at me. Um, I think that in Luke, in the bottom left there, you'll see that when he calls his disciples, he specifically says, you're going to be catchers of men, not just catching fish. But that definitely points, I think, to Jesus being the Savior of all. Uh, certainly, the as I've already articulated, some of the parables and, and healing uh, that Luke emphasizes uh, makes the same point. Well, so what we're going to do now in the next, um, I think I have seven weeks um, for Sermon on the Mount. So next week we're going to look at kind of the preamble to the Sermon on the Mount, some of the way um, Jesus is said to have fulfilled Old Testament passages, and it's quite surprising ways. And that'll be a, a, a little bit of a picture of um, questioning how does the New Testament quote the Old Testament? It's not always as straightforward or always the same that we might expect. And then we're going to spend six weeks on the Sermon on the Mount itself, uh, looking at the parables, the type of citizens in the kingdom. We're going to have an exercise there about uh, the law and kind of systematic versus biblical theology. We're going to look at what, what is the whole idea of rewards. I mean, that doesn't really strike us as very reformed. Uh, we're going to look at the Lord's Prayer, look at anxiety, and just look at uh, hypocrisy and the you know, whole idea of judgment. So please read ahead uh, the Sermon on the Mount there. Uh, Matthew 5 through 7, uh, and also Luke 6 and other places that he mimics that teaching. Um, who's up? Would anyone like to pray for us to close us up? I can, I can pray for us. All right, thank you. <clears throat> Father God, we thank you for the glory of this day, what it represents to us, the great eternal hope we have that someday we'll no longer see through a glass darkly, but we'll see you face to face. Thank you, Father, for all that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John did to put these accounts down, and that through 2,000 years, as they've been carried down through history, they've encouraged believers. Father God, we thank you for peace preparation, and we ask now as we go into worship that you would mold our hearts, help us to be sensitive to the word, pray that you give the Holy Spirit's power to Tim as he preaches. And we thank you once again for the blessing that Easter Day is. He is risen. He is risen indeed. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.